0: Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm the host of this podcast, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor of Old and New Testament and theology at Colorado Christian University. And over the past few podcasts, we've been diving into the deep waters of controversial issues. We've been looking at predestination, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit total depravity, limited atonement and for today's podcast we're going to look at another element or another doctrine related to the doctrines of grace or reformed theology called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. What is irresistible grace? About four or five years ago, I did a teaching at my church on Reformed theology or the, the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, the doctrines of grace, and so this is a portion of the teaching that I did on Irresistible Grace, and so let's listen to the podcast and find out what Irresistible Grace is all about. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Alright, tonight we are getting to the I in the tulip acrostic, and again, um, I didn't like the L, not that I didn't agree with the theology, I just didn't like the term limited atonement, and I don't necessarily like the term irresistible grace, I understand what it means, but I would prefer to use terms that actually uh, show up more in the Bible, like regeneration, or um, calling, And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about irresistible grace, and I'll explain that term. But up to this point, everything that we've discussed has happened in the past. Nothing has really happened to you yet in the tulip acrostic as far as your personal experience of salvation. Think about election. When did election take place? Regardless of what view you take, election happened before the foundation of the world. It happened in eternity past According to Ephesians 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world. When did Jesus die on the cross? 2,000 years ago. The atonement was a past history event where Jesus actually died on the cross for our sins. Um, when did Adam and Eve live? Long time ago, they were the ones that brought sin into the human race, okay? So we're a product of their fall. We are sinful. And so we look at uh, the T, total depravity. We're, de- we're totally unable to come to Christ because of our sin. You, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. L, Jesus died for us on the cross. And so we get to the I. I, the irresistible grace portion of it, really describes how election, how um, Christ's death, how that comes to us at a point in time. It really talks more about our salvation experience, the experience of salvation. And I like to prefer to use the terms born again, being born again, uh, re- regeneration, the Holy Spirit's regeneration, effectual calling. We have a lot of terms in the Bible about being called or the called ones. And so I want us just to review some key verses because we've been looking a lot at John. Uh, so let's look at John John 6.37. And just review, actually why don't you go ahead and and open to John chapter 3. We're going to look at John chapter 3, but I want to give you some review before we go to John chapter 3. Because uh, John chapter 3 is where Jesus talks about being born again, uh, the whole story of Nicodemus. But I want us to look at the context of the gospel of John and how John the writer has been talking about these concepts in his gospel. So John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay, we've been looking at that verse over and over and over again. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now let me just tell you my personal journey into the doctrines of grace and how I started thinking about these issues. And it was a watershed moment for me when I started asking some deeper questions of this passage of Scripture. And here's my question All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come unless the Father draws. And so I started asking a question. And maybe you're asked this question Does the Father draw everyone? Have you ever thought about that? Because if the Father draws everyone, what did Jesus say? All that the Father has given me will come to me. And so it dawned on me that there's got to be a reason why only those come and some don't come. So some come to the Father and some don't. The Arminian would say the reason that some don't come is because they use their free will not to come. The Calvinist would say the reason some come is because the Father Drew them. But if the Father drew those to Himself and they didn't come, then what is Jesus saying here? All that the Father gives to me will come. You you have a, a frustrated God trying to draw sinners, but they don't end up coming. Okay, let's look at John 10, 14 through 16. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus speaks about the sheep, the flock, those that have been given to him by the Father. Then in John 17, 1 through 2, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's that terminology again. All that the Father has given to Jesus, and then later on down in that passage, John 17:6 through 9, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given is from me, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. What I want to show you here is all through the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying that the Father has given to him a people out of the world, and that these people will come to him, And all that the Father draws will come and the Father will draw them. Okay, we're going to go to John chapter 3. But before we go to John chapter 3, I want to show you a passage in the Old Testament. Because when we look at this Old Testament passage, John chapter 3 is going to make a lot of sense. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was considered the teacher in Israel. Not just one of many teachers, but the way the text speaks is he's the teacher in Israel, which he knew his Old Testament. So on, the, on your sheet there, we have Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is a promise of what God is going to do in a future day. Okay, so this is Old Testament. He's prophesying. This is God speaking. What does God say he's going to do in a new day, someday in the future? speaking from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25-27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, the Holy Spirit plays a distinct role in what's going to happen someday, okay? So let's look at these promises of what God promises to do. First of all, God promised to cleanse us with water. I will sprinkle you. I will cleanse you with water, okay? Now, this is not an actual reference to baptism. This is basically a symbolic way of of God saying, I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to cleanse your heart. I'm going to wash you from your impurities, There's going to be a spiritual cleansing that's going to happen in your life. What else does God promise he's going to do? God will give us what? A new heart. He says, I'm going to do a heart transplant. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. and and, and, That's a metaphor for a dead, stony, unresponsive, cold heart. God's going to take that heart out and give us a new, living, spiritual heart. God's going to do this heart transplant. Also, God says that he will put his Holy Spirit within us. Now, this is very important because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never really indwelt a person. A Holy Spirit would come on a person. A Holy Spirit would visit a person, maybe anoint them with power. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we find out that the Holy Spirit actually indwelled or lived inside of a person. So God promises, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you. He's going to come and live in you. And then we also see what else God's going to do. God's going to work in us to cause us to walk in holiness. In other words, God's going to do a work of deep transformation that's going to cause us to walk in holiness. Okay? Now, I, I stressed when I read this, the primary purpose person who's doing the action. Who's doing the action of all these things? God. God says, I will, I will, I will. Now, can we cleanse our own hearts? Can we replace our own hearts? Can we put the Holy Spirit in us? Can we do all these things? No, we can't because of what we looked at a few weeks ago about total depravity. We are sinful. We are depraved. We are dead in sin. Our minds are hostile to God. We are enslaved and bondage to sin. We can't produce this change. Okay, I want you to think hard about that Ezekiel passage, okay? Keep that Ezekiel passage in your mind. As we go to John chapter 3, and I want you to see the parallels of how Jesus ties that Ezekiel passage into what he tells Nicodemus. So let's pick up in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Let's just do some observations just from what Jesus says, okay? What's the first thing Jesus says we're unable to do unless we're born again? He says, unless you're born again, you cannot what? See. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, the kingdom of God implies God's rule, God's reign, salvation, all things related to having a personal relationship with God. And, G- and Jesus is saying, unless this spiritual transformation happens, you can't see it. So what does it imply if you can't see? That you're blind. Okay, let's look at that 2 Corinthians passage and see how it ties into the spiritual blindness. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. through In their case, the God of this world, and that's a reference to Satan or the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Okay, so Satan's blinded the minds. What's he doing? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So spiritually, what's our condition? We're blinded. Satan has blinded us from seeing the glory of Jesus. So God has to do something to take the blinders off. And in that passage, it says God has shown the light in our hearts to give us spiritual eyes to be able to see. Okay, what does Jesus say? Unless you're born again, you can't see. What's the second thing he says you can't do unless you're born again? Unless you're born again, you cannot what? Enter. Now, what does entrance signify? Somehow you're barred access into the kingdom of God somehow something's preventing you from entering the kingdom of God you don't have the ability there's something blocking you from the kingdom of God now based upon everything that we've looked at so far what's that one thing that blocks us entrance into God's kingdom our sin our sin as a matter of fact in John the same gospel we've we'll been looking at what does Jesus say in John eight thirty four? truly truly I say to you everyone who commits a sin is what A slave to sin. So we're in captivity to sin without Jesus. Romans 3, I'm not going to read all of these because this is is a repeat of what we talked about when we looked at total depravity. But Romans 3, um, no one is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks, all have turned aside. Uh, No one does good, no, not even one. Romans 8, 7 through 9, it talks about how our minds are hostile against God, we cannot submit to God's law. Ephesians 2, 1-3, we were dead in sin, we, we followed Satan, uh, we were sons of disobedience, we are children of wrath. Um, Titus 3, 3, uh, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and being, hating one another. So we look at these passages of scripture and what does it tell us? I've given you kind of summary there. We're blinded by Satan, we're enslaved to sin, no one's righteous, no one seeks God, our sinful and hostile minds do not, do not and cannot please God. We're dead in our sins. We're children of wrath. We're disobedient slaves to our evil passions. Now, most Christians at this point would agree that we're sinful, right? That we are sinful. That we've inherited a sin nature from Adam. I mean, you can't deny Romans 5.12 that says that because of Adam's sin, we all sin. We've been born with a sin nature. But let's take it a step further, okay? Okay. Irresistible grace is linked to total depravity. They work together. There has to be irresistible grace because of total depravity or total inability. So let me ask you these questions that I put here on your sheet. Can sinners, in and of themselves, cause themselves to see truth? If we're blinded by Satan, can we just take the blinders off? Can a sinner, in and of themselves, break the yoke of slavery? Can we just become righteous and start doing good? Can we just start pleasing God and obeying His law and, and not having our minds hostile against God? Can we make ourselves alive when we're dead in sin? Can we stop being children of wrath? And the question that, to all these, uh, the answer to all these is no. What does John 6.44 say? No one can what? Come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And let's just do a little bit of review. When Jesus says no one can come, he's talking about ability. That Greek word means no one has the inherent ability to come. You just can't come in and of yourself unless something happens to you. What's that something that must happen to you? God must draw you. And then later on down in John 6, 65, he says it again. That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted. Which sounds like what? What does granted sound like? A gift. And I think the New American Standard says unless he is enabled by the Father. So that you, God has to do an enabling, a drawing, a granting for anybody to come to faith in Jesus. So Jesus makes some very clear statements here. He says sinners don't have the ability to come to God. No one can come. You and I lack the ability to come. And the reason we lack the ability is all those verses we looked at about sin. We're dead in sin. We're slaves to sin. We, we are, no one's righteous. No one's good. We're blinded by Satan. Those are our conditions without Jesus. So what must God do? God, and this is just a review, God must draw and enable. And we're having problems again with our... There we go. The Father must draw and the Father must enable or grant you. So if you're ever going to come to Jesus, if you're here this morning or tonight... This morning <laughs> it's been a long day if you're here tonight and you're a christian what happened god drew you god enabled you to come okay somehow god did something in your life to cause you to come to christ we see from these truths total depravity total inability now here's a question Maybe you've never asked this question before. You have two people sitting in church on a Sunday morning, both under the preaching of God's word, both lost people. One responds to the gospel. One doesn't respond to the gospel. Why does one come to Christ and why does one not come to Christ? That's the question we often ask, right? why, Why does one choose and the other not? But have you ever asked asked the question this way? Why does anybody come? If we're totally dead in sin, why does anybody come? Or how does anybody come? The, The amazing thing is that anybody would come because we are so sinful. And so we have to look back at John 3 and ask the question, how in the world does anybody become born again? So let's go back to that John passage and look at the issue of being born again. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus has to happen to him? He must be what? Born again. Nicodemus is confused. He says, well, I can't crawl back up into my mother's womb. That's kind of weird, Jesus. I'm already physically born. What are you talking about? Then Jesus says, let me take it a step further. You must be born of what? Water and the Spirit. Now, what does that sound like? Does that sound like that, that Ezekiel passage we talked about? What did God promise in Ezekiel? I will cleanse you with what? Water. I will put my spirit in you. So it's not talking about baptism there. He's not saying to be born again, you got to be baptized. He's using a metaphor going back to Ezekiel, speaking of what God promised to do with the new heart. It's, Nicodemus would have gotten this because he was the teacher in Israel. He would have known that, oh, light bulb goes on. Jesus is saying water, he's talking about spirit, he's talking about Holy Spirit. Ah, Ezekiel said that in the Old Testament. God was going to promise a day where he'd give us a new heart. And Jesus says that's what happens when you're born again. You experience what? The spiritual cleansing, the spiritual washing. You get a new life, a new heart. You're born again. As a matter of fact, later on in John 6, 63, Jesus says this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So if you're going to be born again, can you cause yourself to be born again? No, the Holy Spirit gives you life. The Holy Spirit does it. The Holy Spirit's the one that causes all these things to happen. In your natural birth, let me just ask you a question. Did you have anything to do in your natural birth? I'm not going to give you a sex ed class tonight, but mom and dad come together, create a single cell. The natural processes of birth happens, and you're born. Did you have anything to do with that? It just happened, right? It was a miracle of birth. That's what we call the miracle of childbirth. In the same way, in our spiritual birth, Jesus is saying, God does it. God causes you to be born again. Only the Spirit is the one that does this. And Jesus even goes on further and says this, you can't control the new birth. How does he liken it to? He uses this metaphor of the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it's coming from, the same way with the, with the person who's born again. So here's the, here's the frustrating thing as a preacher. I can preach my heart out on Sunday morning extending the call of the gospel but nothing's going to happen unless what? The Holy Spirit blows and comes upon a person. Can I control that? You know, I, I've, I've told this before. You can take, especially with children, like with children and evangelism, you can manipulate kids to do anything you want. I can get 20 kids up here to ask Jesus in their heart if you give me enough time. I can manipulate them. I can motivate them. I can get them riled up to make a decision that would be favorable. But does that mean the Holy Spirit's come and blown in their heart and given them new life? Maybe, but maybe not. So I can't control who gets born again. That's something that God does. That's something the Holy Spirit does. Now, you've got this image from the Old Testament of water, spirit, new heart. You got this passage in John with Jesus talking about being born again. What passage of scripture in the New Testament marries those two concepts together and gives us the best picture of what we're talking about? It's in Titus. Titus 3, 4 through 6. We, f- we get the best definition of regeneration. That's the theological word we're talking about tonight, regeneration, which really just means being born again. Re, again, generate, Genesis, rebirth. Okay, Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By what? The washing. What does that sound like? That clean water, cleanse you with water. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. One of the reasons you should praise God in your salvation is that he's richly poured out the Holy Spirit and washed you and regenerated you and, rene- and caused you to be born again. So what exactly is regeneration? What does it mean to be born again? We, we often use that term, I'm a born again Christian. I'm born again. And we kind of throw that terminology out and sometimes it can be a, a disparaging term. What does it mean to be born again? And let me ask you a question. Is there any such thing as, an, can you be a Christian and not be born again? It's almost like an oxymoron, a born-again Christian. Well, obviously, if you're a Christian, you're born again. So it's really an adjective to describe something that should have happened to all Christians. Let's just talk about what regeneration does. Regeneration produces an inward, miraculous change of heart. It is a miracle. What did God say he would do? I will take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God does this miraculous transplant where he gives you a brand new heart. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So regeneration is not just an improvement of you. It's a whole new you. It's a whole new nature. It's a whole new regeneration. You are, you, you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's a whole new heart. Okay, number two, it's a supernatural act. It's a supernatural. It's something supernatural. It's something Holy Spirit derived. It's something that you just can't produce. It's something that, that God works miraculously to cause to happen. He overcomes your deadness, he overcomes your sin, he overcomes your depravity, he overcomes your hostility, he overcomes all of the things in you that prevent you from coming to him, and he miraculously and supernaturally gives you the new birth. 2 Peter 1, through 3-4, you can read that, it basically talks about how we're partakers of the divine nature, that we have become partakers of the divine nature, we have been supernaturally changed into a new creation and then number three not only is it a, a, a regeneration of your heart but really your mind too now what's the difference between heart and mind that's for another topic but really all throughout the scriptures it talks about how we can have our mind renewed that when you become a christian you have the mind of christ you're, basically what we're saying in regeneration is this god does a unique supernatural act that makes you a whole brand new creation you're a new creature In Christ, you're born again. Now, Anthony Huckema, in his book, Saved by Grace, gives three good summary statements um, about regeneration. He says this, "Um, regeneration is instantaneous. It's not a gradual process. You don't get more and more regenerated. There's a moment in time where you were regenerated. Now, you may not know when that happened because it's secret and it's sovereign and God does it to you. Most of us here probably don't remember the moment that we were, quote-unquote, regenerated. So it's instantaneous. When the Holy Spirit decides to blow like the wind, He's going to regenerate His elect. Let's look at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, 4-5. through 5. We may come back to these, these, these passages in a little while, too. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Who made us alive? Did you make yourself alive? Who does it say made us alive? God made you alive. How come you couldn't make yourself alive? You were dead. Can a dead person cause life? What can a dead person do? Rot. Okay, there's not much a dead person can do. Unless something supernatural, instantaneous, miraculous happens to them, that's what happens in the new birth. The Holy Spirit gives you new life. Now, here's an example in the Bible of where we see this happen. Acts 16, 14. One who heard... This is when Paul goes down to Philippi. He goes down the river. He finds these women praying. He goes and he preaches the gospel. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. uh, From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then later we find out she and her whole household get baptized and the church in Philippi starts in her home. Who opened her heart? Have you ever heard a pastor say, just open your heart to Jesus? Just open your heart, open your heart. Can you do that? Can you open your heart? No, the Lord opened her heart. Now I understand what that preacher's saying. He's saying, be sensitive to what I'm saying. Be sensitive to the Spirit. But ultimately, we should be praying, Lord, open their hearts Lord opened their hearts to the truth. That's what happened here. Lydia's heart was opened by the Lord so that she could see and enter the kingdom of heaven. This is almost a repeat, but it's a supernatural change. I think I've beat that drum enough. It's regeneration is supernatural. It's not something that's naturally produced. It's not a decision. Okay, let's just talk, let's just stop and talk about decisional regeneration. Okay, Because it runs rampant in churches. This is not on your notes, so this is just some extra stuff. A lot of times in churches, we have a lot of people that quote-unquote make a decision for Jesus, but they were never born again. Do you understand what I'm saying? They may have walked forward at an altar call. They may have raised their hand. They may have even asked Jesus into their heart. They may have gone through some religious steps to try to maybe appease their conscience or please the pastor or please their parents or do something, but they were never actually what? Regenerated. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be regenerated coming forward or you can't be regenerated raising your hand. That's not what saves you, okay? Walking forward does not save you. This is just a piece of real estate at the front of the building. There's nothing magical about coming up front. What saves you is regeneration when the Holy Spirit comes and causes you to be born again. And so what we're saying here is there's a lot of people that you may have known over the years that quote-unquote asked Jesus into their heart, prayed the prayer, and you see them now living like they don't have any relationship with Jesus. What happened? What did they do? They may have just said a prayer but never been regenerated. We'll talk about that when we get to Perseverance of the Saints. I don't want to Go down that whole trail of, you know, do they lose their salvation? Were they, were they saved in the first place? It's supernatural. And it's also a radical change. Now, let me just tell you what the word radical means. Does anybody know what the word radical means? Hey, radical, man. It's from Latin, radix, it means root. Radical means root. So what we're saying is it goes to the very core root level of who you are. It's not just a cosmetic band-aid that God puts on you for moral improvement. It goes to the very core of your being. It's a radical change from the inside out. So let me ask you a question here. I have put these bullet points on your sheet. If a person is to be saved, God must do some things. God must do these things, okay? You can't do them. God must do them. God must make them spiritually alive. God must cause them to be born again. God must replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. God must open their blinded eyes. God must wash them with regeneration. God must give life. God must break the chains of bondage to sin. And God must open a sinner's heart. So God has to do it. Now, this all makes sense just logically if you look at total depravity and you look at unconditional election, if we are totally depraved, meaning not, not not that we're as bad as we could be, just at the core of our being we are sinful. All those descriptions that the Bible gives about a sinner—if that's true—then there's got to be a supernatural change in us that God must produce. Now, let me give you a really good analogy. John chapter eleven—is that in your text? John eleven. Or did I add that in afterwards? I may have added this in afterwards. You're already in John 3. Turn to John 11. This is the story of Nicodemus. I mean, the story of Lazarus. Sorry, the story of Lazarus. Okay, turn to John 11, and let's pick up in verse 38. This is a visual illustration of regeneration. And I want to show you how this is a picture of what happens to sinners when God saves them. We get this picture in Nicodemus. I mean, why do I keep saying Nicodemus? We just looked at Nicodemus and Lazarus. Lazarus, Nicodemus, two different guys, okay? John 11, 38 through 44. Here we go. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor For he has been dead four days. I think the King James says he stinketh. He's been dead for four days, okay? What happens to a dead body even after one day, Bill? If you don't do stuff to it, it starts to decompose and stink. Four days he's been in the tomb. Jesus said, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come out!" The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face unwrapped, or his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, "Unbind him and let him go." OK. Here's the basic story. Lazarus has been dead for four, year, four years, four days. Jesus says, "What? What does Jesus have to say? Come out. What does Lazarus do? He comes out. Okay? Now let's, take, let's translate that into the spiritual realm. What are we all? We are all spiritually dead. We are spiritual corpses. We are dead in our sins. We're dead in our transgressions. The moment that regeneration happens, what does God say to your spirit? Come out. Be made alive. The Holy Spirit blows in you, and what do you do? You are given new life. Now let me ask you a question. Did Lazarus cause himself to be born? I mean, did Lazarus cause himself to be raised from the dead? Did Lazarus get mad at Jesus for raising him from the dead? Did Lazarus walk out and say, Jesus, you violated my will. Jesus, how dare you bring me to new life? I value my free will so much in my deadness, I don't want to be alive. Did Lazarus say that? He was thankful that as a dead man, he'd been raised to new life. As sinners who are dead in our sins, God does the same thing. He raises us to new life and gives us that spiritual life. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you two examples from current books by a man named Dave Hunt. I talked a little bit about Dave Hunt. Uh, he's a little out there when it comes. He's on an anti-Calvinistic crusade. Let's just say that. Here's one of his books, What Love Is This? Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. Here's a book that he wrote, co-wrote, with my seminary professor. And as a matter of fact, my seminary professor was James White. James White was going to debate Dave Hunt, but they never got around to debating it in public, so they wrote a book where they went chapter after chapter. The cool thing about this was uh, back when this book was being written, uh, Dr. White actually gave me a, a manuscript of, one of, the, of, a, of a few parts of a chapter for me to look at to see what I, what I thought about it, and I get, kind of gave him some feedback. I don't know if he used it or whatever, but um, debating Calvinism. And so Dave Hunt has written a book that really, really slams all of the doctrines of grace. And then this book, this would be a good book for you to read if you can get through it. It's so frustrating, but um, it's interesting. Let me give you some quotes from Dave Hunt. First of all, let me give you the quote here from his book on regeneration. Okay, here we go. This is a quote from Dave Hunt. The Calvinist fails. In fact, he doesn't even attempt to support from Scripture the idea that even the most depraved sinner is unable to believe the gospel much less that to do so requires any special ability that the natural man lacks. There are many passages in the Bible declaring that man is a sinful, wicked rebel alienated from God, but there is not one to support the assertion that depraved sinners, no matter how evil, lack some special ability required to believe in Christ, not one. How would you respond to that? He's saying there's not one verse in the Bible that says that a sinner has to have some type of special ability to come to Christ. That's almost Pelagianism. He's almost saying that we have the inherent ability just to believe when we want. That yes, we're sinful, but nothing nothing special has to happen to us to cause us to be born again. Not one verse that says that. Let me give you some other statements from him. He says this, Given TULIP, how can the gospel affect the salvation of anyone? The unregenerate, elect or non-elect, cannot understand or believe it. And even if the non-elect somehow could, it would be of no avail because they've been predestined to eternal damnation from the beginning. The elect are regenerated without the gospel, and only then can they believe. But once regenerated, they have already been saved unless one can be sovereignly regenerated and still not be saved. Having been regenerated without the gospel, subsequently hearing and believing it cannot save them since they have surely already been saved in their regeneration. Does that make any sense to you? What his argument is, is that He says in the Calvinist scheme, you're saved and you don't even know it. God regenerates you and you don't even know. You could go your whole life and not know you were saved because God just regenerated you. And you're regenerated without the gospel. The gospel doesn't have to come to you. God just somehow zaps you and and causes you to be born again. Is that what the Bible teaches? Nowhere. No Calvinist would ever say God just zaps you. He uses the gospel. He uses the message. He uses evangelism. And when you're regenerated, you know it because what do you do? Your eyes are open, and you come. What is coming equated to? Believing. Let me give you another quote, see if it makes more sense. thought it was interesting. I was reading him today. Here we go. The Bible offers no justification whatsoever from Genesis to Revelation for concluding that man is morally a corpse. Prone to evil, yes, but unable to understand that he is a sinner and that Christ died for his sins, unable to recognize when he does wrong and incapable of believing the gospel, no, Never does the Bible teach that. Nor does it teach that spiritually dead cannot understand the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Now what he's doing here is he's putting up a straw man. He's saying that we Calvinists say that man can't understand the gospel. That's not what we're saying. You can understand the facts of the gospel all day long. You can know that you're a sinner. But until you are regenerated, that's when you're actually saved. We're not saying that because you're totally depraved, you can't understand the gospel we're not saying that you, can't res- that you can't understand the facts of the gospel. The gospel may be very clear. Have you met people that understand the gospel but are stone-cold lost? I mean, I know some people that can quote to you Bible scriptures. I know people that know their Bible inside and out, but they're lost. So they know the gospel. That's not the issue. What's the issue? It's The issue is the new heart. It's regeneration. Another quote, and then I'll stop picking on Dave Hunt. Let's see, where's this one? Okay. No one naturally seeks the Lord. We all seek our own selfish desires. And no one can come to Christ except the Father draws him. But the Holy Spirit is in the world to convict all of their sin and need. The gospel is being preached. The Father is drawing everyone, even through the witness of creation and conscience. Sadly, many like Judas come part way, even seem to be a disciple, then draw back unto perdition. Okay, what he's saying here is that God draws everyone. And God may be drawing you through creation. If you look out and see the stars and moon, that's God drawing you to himself. And and Judas was being drawn, and Judas was being drawn, but he got halfway and what did he do? He chose not to cooperate with the being drawn. What does the Bible say about Judas? Let's go back to John chapter 6. Poor Judas. I mean, he's, he's blamed for his own, his own um, downfall. Starting in John 6, um, 44. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas was also called the son of perdition. It was also predicted that Judas was going to betray. So nowhere in the Bible does it say Judas was drawn halfway and then he made the decision to decide not to go all the way. From the very beginning, Judas was going to betray Jesus. Now, here's the $10 million question. Here's what separates the two camps. Arminians believe that you have to be born again. We're We're not denying that. Every Arminian you talk to believes in the new birth. Every Calvinist you talk to believes in the new birth. But here's what separates them. Here's the $10 million question, okay? It's one of those, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first? Are you regenerated first and then you believe? Or do you believe and as a result of your belief, then you're regenerated? Which comes first? The Calvinist says you are regenerated first and then you believe. The Arminian says, no, you use your free will to believe, and upon your exercise of belief, then God regenerates you. That's what the two camps have. Now, what I did today, just because I wanted to be fair, I went on the website of the Wesleyan Church, which is a major Arminian denomination. This is not in your notes, by the way. I went to the Nazarene Church which is a major Armenian denomination, and then I'm going to tell you where else I went, and I want to show you from their very words what they say about regeneration, and I want you to see if you can see the difference, okay? Here's the official statement from the Wesleyan church. I'll read it. It's not on your sheet. I didn't have a chance to get it in there, but just just listen closely. Since the fall of Adam, people are unable in their own strength to do right. We would agree with that, right, up to this point. This is due to original sin, But which is not simply following which is not simply the following of Adam's example, but rather the corruption of the nature of each mortal and is reproduced naturally in Adam's descendants. Because of it, humans are very far gone from original righteousness and by nature are inclined to evil. Well, we agree with that. We would agree with that, right? Up to this point, I'm on board with the Arminians. We have inherited original sin from Adam, we are sinful. They cannot of themselves even call upon God or exercise faith for salvation. That sounds like a Calvinist, doesn't it? They can't call upon him. They can't do anything. But here's where we differ. Okay, if they would have stopped right there, we would have said, I'm in, I'm in alignment with the Wesleyans. But here's what they say. But through Jesus Christ, the provenient grace of God makes possible with humans in, se- in, in self-effort cannot do. It is bestowed freely upon all, enabling all who will to turn and be saved. So what they're saying is, yes, there's original sin. Yes, we're unable, but what does God do? He gives to all prevenient grace. Every single person gets prevenient grace. Remember, prevenient grace is cooperating grace. You can choose to cooperate it with it. you can choose not to cooperate it. If you desire to cooperate with that grace, God will take you all the way to salvation. If you choose not to cooperate with that grace, you've gone halfway and you don't get salvation, okay? The problem with that is prevenient grace is not taught anywhere in the Bible. It was something that really John Wesley kind of thought up to protect the idea of total depravity, but prevenient grace is given to everybody. So ultimately, it's your decision whether you are going to be cooperating. Now, here's what they believe about regeneration. We believe that regeneration or the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. We would agree with that, right? Whereby one, when, when one truly repents and believes, one's moral nature is given a distinctly spiritual life. So they're saying when you truly when or after you believe, then you're regenerated. Okay, so that's the Arminian viewpoint. You exercise your free will, you choose, you believe, you come to Christ, and once you do that then God causes you to be born again. So your faith comes first in the Arminian scheme. And I'll show you in a little bit, the Calvinist scheme says, no, God causes you to be born again. And the very first response you have when you're born again is you repent and you believe. I've often given this illustration about a baby. When a baby is to be born, does the baby cry out to cause himself to be born? Does the baby say, mama, push me out? What happens? He is born. Okay. What's the first thing a baby does when he's born? He cries. Now in the spiritual realm, the first thing we do when we're born again is we cry out to God. Our crying out to God was not what prompted us to be born again. Our crying out to God was a result of what happened when we were born again. Two sides of the same coin. It's an instantaneous action. It may seem like it happens at the same time. It may look like we're the ones choosing. Now let me just say this. Calvinists believe that we choose. Arminians believe we choose. I'm not afraid of using that terminology of choosing for Jesus. I just know in my mindset the reason I choose is because God gave me the gift and the regeneration to do that. So the issue is not do you choose Christ. The issue is why. Do you choose Christ because you used your free will or do you choose Christ because he caused you to be born again? I believe the, 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 the viewpoint that God causes us to be born again and when he does that, instantaneously we choose. And from our vantage point, what does it feel like? It feels like we're the ones choosing, right? But since regeneration is a sovereign and secret act, the reason we do choose is because God has done that work in us. Okay? So that's that's really the difference between the two views. Now let me just tell you something that was very, very depressing. I went to a website that gave me the top one hundred largest churches in America today. And I thought, you know what, I'll go to the top churches in America and I just want to look and see what their doctrinal statements are. The mega churches in America. So, you know, number one's Lakewood Church, Joel Osteen. I went to Joel Osteen's church to look at his doctrinal statement. It's about that long. There is not hardly any, I mean, believe in Jesus, love God, believe the Bible, but there is not much on doctrine. And as, what was very scary was that almost none of these churches, except for the Southern Baptist ones, there were some actually some Southern Baptist ones in there that actually had the Baptist faith and message, but most of these megachurches had very little doctrinal statements on what they believed, which really didn't really distinguish them from anything. Now let me talk about Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale is the ninth largest church in America. Right now, the leaders of Calvary Chapel—I've told you this—are kind of on an anti-Calvinistic crusade, and I just want to give you their doc, the Calvary Chapel doctrinal statement, because they believe that you exercise faith and then you're regenerated. So they believe more of an Arminian viewpoint on regeneration. Let me read you their statement: When a person, when a person repents of sin and accepts Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, trusting him to save, that person is immediately born again and sealed by the Holy Spirit. So they're saying when you trust Jesus, that comes first, then you're born again. That's just the difference between the two. Now, here's New Life Church, Colorado Springs, okay? The the town I grew up in, largest church in Colorado Springs. I went to their website because I wanted to get kind of a mega church that I knew about. And I'm not picking on New Life because it's a good church, but I just want to show you the differences between the view of regeneration. They say this. They make even a statement on predestination, which I thought was interesting. The Word of God declares clearly that salvation is a free gift of God based on the merits of the death of His Son and is appropriated by faith. I have no problem with that. Salvation is affected by personal repentance, belief on the Lord Jesus, justification, and personal acceptance of Him into one's life as Lord and Savior, regeneration. It's interesting how they define regeneration. They define regeneration as personally accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I know that we're arguing semantics, but that's not really how I would define regeneration. Then, listen to what else they say. Salvation is an act of free will in response to God's personal love for mankind. It is predestined only in the sense that God, through his omniscience, foreknew those who would choose him. So based upon what we've learned so far, what's their view of election? The foreknowledge view. Okay, just thought it was interesting that their doctrinal statement was actually pretty... There, there was a lot in their doctrinal statement. Now, what I want to do here is I want to teach you a little bit of Greek. Okay, <laughs> Didn't think you'd come to Wednesday night and learn Greek. One of the important tenses in the Greek language is the perfect tense. We really don't have an equivalent in English. Let me just define for you what the perfect tense is. Because you may hear me talking about this on Sunday mornings uh, when you do Bible study. Um, when I do Bible study, the tenses of verbs are really some of the most important things you want to look at. Perfect tense. Okay, here, let me give you a definition of perfect tense. It's a past tense action. The past tense action came to a completion in the past. Okay? But it didn't just stop right there. That would just be... The the, the aorist tense is basically just basic past tense action. I went to the store. That would be the aorist tense. I went to the store. It's a done deal. I did it. Perfect tense is different. Perfect tense says... The action came to a completion, but the effects of that action have ongoing results that stand in the present and in the future. Okay, does that make sense? So it's a stronger tense of saying something happened in the past, but you're still living, that the effects of that action are still living on in the present. For example, when Jesus says, it is finished, that's in the perfect tense. He died. Okay, he died once and for all 2,000 years ago. But since it's in the perfect tense, that finished work continues on into the present so that we can be recipients of the finished work of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, when you have a perfect tense verb in a sentence and you have a present tense verb, what's a present tense verb? Ongoing present tense action. In Greek, when you have a perfect tense and a present tense together in a sentence, Which comes first in time? The perfect tense. The perfect tense comes first in time. So when you look at a sentence, whatever's in the perfect tense happened first, and the present tense is happening now, or is happening as a result of the perfect tense, okay? So with that little Greek lesson being done, let me just repeat it again to make sure we all get it. Perfect tense, that happened first. The present tense verb happens as a result of the perfect tense of what you're doing now. Okay, so your present action is dependent upon what happened in the perfect tense, okay? Now, let's look at John 12, let's look at John, because John is fond of using the perfect tense. Now, when the terminology born of God shows up in the Bible, what are we thinking about? Being what? Born again. Okay, so when when John says born of God, it's just another way of saying regeneration, being born again. All those metaphors we looked at. Okay, let's look at John 1, 12 through 13. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of what? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But of God. Now, this doesn't really have the perfect tense in there, but what does this tell us about being born of God? What's the cause of us being born of God? What does he, he he basically tells us what is not related to? What can we say is not the reason why you're born of God? What does it mean of blood? Natural birth. You're not a Christian because of natural birth. Or the flesh. Not of your will. He says twice there, it's not the will of the flesh or the will of man. If there's ever a verse to say that you're not born again because of your will, what verse is it? it says right there, you are not born again because of the will of man, but of who? God. So why are you born again, according to John? God. And he's very specific to tell you the reasons why you're not born again. Now, let's go into 1 John and let's see all the instances that John uses the perfect tense, born of God, with present tense, and see which one comes first. Okay, so you guys tell me, in a sentence where you have the perfect and the present, which one comes first? Perfect, okay. In all of these tenses that I'm going to show you in 1 John, when it says born of God, All the times that the word born of God shows up, it's in the perfect tense. Okay? So let's just read these. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what came first? Being born of God. If you're born of God, what do you do? You practice righteousness. So what's evidence that you've been born again? You live in a right way. Okay? Let's just keep going. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been what? Born of God. Evidence that you're born again is that you don't make a practice of habitual sin. It doesn't mean that you never sin. It just means that because you have a new nature, what are you able to do now? You're able to have a life that is not enslaved to sin. What's the reason? Because you have been what? Born of God. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, what's evidence that you know God and you love God? You have been born again. Now, this is where it gets very, very important. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes... That Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So what comes first? Believing or being born of God? Being born of God. Evidence that you've been born of God is that you believe in Jesus. So what I'm arguing here from the actual text is the viewpoint that regeneration comes before your faith. And here's the reason why. If you're totally depraved, can you produce that faith in the first place? You can't. God must do something to you. And all I'm saying is God causes you to be born again, then you choose. The Arminian would say, no, you have the free will, you choose, and then you're born again. God gives you prevenient grace, you cooperate with that grace, great, you get yourself in, then you're born again. Your faith triggers the born again. That's the Arminian view. Your faith triggers being born again. The Calvinist view says being born again triggers your faith. Does that make sense? So in both views, you're still believing. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe for you. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe in you. You're still the one making the choice. It's just the reasoning why you make the choice. For the Arminian, it's your free will. For the Calvinist, it's God's God's grace coming to you. Now, this goes back to unconditional election. God's only going to give sovereign grace to who? He's only going to give it to the elect. So the elect are guaranteed to come because what did Jesus say? All that the Father gives to me will come. Why will they come? Because the Father draws them. He's going to raise them up on the last day. Now, let's talk about effectual calling. That's another term that's used, effectual calling. And the reason why we call it effectual is because it actually affects something. And let me just kind of give you the, the two views here. I've, I've given you... Um, I've written down there the Arminian view and the Calvinist view, so I give it to you in writing there. Um, The Spirit, here's the Arminian view. The Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. But inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, proceeds and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow him to have his way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Holy Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. Now let me give you the Calvinistic view. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He's not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation to those whom is it extended. That's probably, and I got this off a website, those are probably two of the best definitions describing the two views right there. Now, let's talk about calling. All throughout the Bible, it talks about the call, the called ones, God issuing a call. There are two types of calls in the Bible. There is the outward, or what we call the universal call. The outward call would be something like this. On Sunday morning, I issue a call. Everybody in this room who's under the sound of my voice come to Jesus. Have you heard me say that? Hopefully every week you hear me extending a call for people to trust Christ. If you're here today, trust Christ, believe Christ. I'm extending the call of the gospel. I'm inviting you to come to Jesus Christ. The call is going out. Am I specifically pointing to who I'm giving the call? Do I say, Laverne, the call is only going to you because I see evidence of God working in you and I know you're really close, so I'm just going to give the call to you. Do I discriminate my call? No, the call goes out to everybody. When the call goes out to everybody, something else happens. There's another type of call. There's an inward call. The inward call is where the Holy Spirit actually takes that outward call and brings it to bear upon a sinner's heart and actually does the work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit calls you to salvation. Okay, That's why in a room you can have some people respond and some people not hear the same call. You're all hearing the same call. Why do some respond and others not? Some are receiving the inward call of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the outward call. Because don't ever accuse a Calvinist of not being evangelistic. How many times have I said it? We share the gospel with everyone. We don't hold back. We go to all nations. We're praying for the Bogta peoples of India. We're going to go to India. We went to Nicaragua. We go to the rescue mission. We're doing this big evangelistic push for Easter. We are wanting to see people get saved, okay? So we extend the gospel to everybody. What are the elements of the gospel call? What what should you do when you give the gospel call? Well, first of all, you've got to give a presentation of the facts. This just helps you in your personal witnessing, okay? Whether you're personally witnessing to a lost person or whether I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, it doesn't matter. God can call a sinner through your outward call. But there's some things in your outward call that really need to be there, okay? The facts of the gospel, you've got to be able to share the facts of the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus did, who God is, what sin is. You've got to be able to to lay that out to them. But you also have got to give them an invitation, and when I say invitation, I'm not saying, you know, come to the front. An invitation could be simply as, has what I said made sense to you? Would you come to Jesus? Would you trust in Jesus? I beg and plead with you to trust in Jesus. Would you consider this and, and, and come to Christ? What did Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus if, issued an invitation. He said to what? Come to me all. Now here's the question. Jesus says, everybody come to me. If you're laboring, if you are heavy laden, come to me, all of you, and I will give you rest. Okay, so Jesus can stand there and say, come to me, everybody. Who's going to come? Who's going to come? A Calvinist would say, the elect. Because all that the Father has given me will come. So Jesus can extend it, and we can extend it to everybody, knowing that the elect will come. The Armenian says, we extend it to everybody, and everybody has a choice whether they're going to come. That's just the difference. Same outward call, it's just the perspective. Now, here's the issue, though. People need to understand this. It's not just an invitation that can be politely refused. It's a summons that must be obeyed. Okay, if I get an invitation, like, for example, I got an invitation um, yesterday through email to my 20th high school reunion 20th anniversary high school reunion it's an invitation i can politely decline that invitation right i can throw it in the trash okay it's an invitation i'm going to politely decline it they've invited me what happens if i get a jury summons (laughs) can i throw it away and politely decline and say i just i'm not going to do it when you're summoned, you have to what there's authority behind the summons you must respond so the gospel invitation is not just an invitation, but it's a summons. And so to decline is a big deal because who's the authority that's calling you? Jesus Christ is Lord. And to not obey Jesus is a serious thing. So you need to tell people, yes, it's an invitation, but there's serious consequences if you don't come. It's a summons because Jesus Christ is calling you. And then also, you need to promise people that there's forgiveness of sins if they call upon the name of the Lord. You need to give them the promise. You know what? Here, Let me lay out the facts of the gospel. Let me beg and plead with you to come. And let me tell you what happens when you do come. When you do come, your sins will be forgiven. All the blessings will be there. Jesus never turns aside anybody that comes to him in repentance and faith. Lay out the glories of what they will get in Christ, okay? So we don't know the identity of the elect. We're not told to know the identity of the elect. What are we told all throughout Scripture? Call, tell, share, witness. When we do that, God does an internal work. Now, that leads to a question, and I've written this down here. If the gospel goes out universally, then why do some people accept it and others do not? Is it an issue of using free will to accept or reject the call, or is there another type of calling that empowers the most resistant of hearts and causes a sinner to come to Christ? There's the ultimate question that will divide the house on theology, and I want to go over these three basic camps again, okay, because I think it's important for you to know the three views. Remember semi-Pelagianism? A semi-Pelagianism is that you have free will. You have the natural capacity to accept or reject Christ. You're sinful, but you're just sick. Yes, you have sin. Yes, you've been affected by the fall, but not so much that you can't just choose. Okay, that's semi-Pelagianism. I would argue that's the view that most people have today. I'm sinful, but I still can choose. There's nothing preventing me from coming to Christ. I've got, I'm sinful, yeah. Uh, You know, I'm I'm depraved, yeah. But don't tell me I am unable. I've still got that spark within me of free will that allows me to come. Okay, that's semi-Pelagianism. Arminianism. Now, let me just tell you this. Arminianism and Calvinism are so close to a certain point and then they split. Arminianism and Calvinism both believe in total depravity. They both believe you're dead in sin. They both believe you're incapable of coming, okay? They both would would stand shoulder to shoulder on the fact that man is dead in sin. Where they diverge is, the Arminian says, God gives prevenient grace to every single person to overcome those effects of total depravity. When that prevenient grace is given, you still have the free will to cooperate or reject that grace. So ultimately, you are in the driver's seat, Okay? The prevenient prevenient grace picture, peace. The Calvinist would say, no, you're totally dead. God must do a sovereign work of regeneration. You don't cooperate with grace. God raises you from spiritual death to spiritual life because you are dead. And he only does that to the elect. He doesn't give that sovereign grace to everybody. Now, you may be saying, well, why is it called irresistible grace? Because can't God's grace be resisted? How many of you here became Christians the very first time that you heard the gospel? maybe you resisted it, right? God's grace came to you in the gospel and you may have resisted it time and time and time again. When we say irresistible grace, we're not saying God's grace can't be resisted. What we're saying is that when God decisively and finally decides to act and to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, he's gonna do it. You can't resist at that point, okay? And it may be different for different people. It could be that on a Sunday morning, there's a lost person there, the gospel's preached and boom, the first time he hears it, he's saved. He's regenerated. It could be a guy who's been going 50 years of his life, he's been resistant, been resistant, and finally, you know, he's, he's on his deathbed, and that's when God decides to regenerate him. The Spirit blows where it wills. So we're not saying God's grace can't be resisted. We're just saying when God finally decides to move in, God says, I'm moving in, and I'm taking over, and you are going to be brought to spiritual life. This is a little bit easier to understand, and I think it's easier to understand because it's, it's the most experiential of all of the doctrines of grace because it's what happens to you. You weren't there when God elected you. You weren't there when Jesus died for you. But you were there when you were saved. So you know, most of you that were saved as adults, I think it's easier for adults to figure this out. When you were saved as an adult, you, you understand the depravity from which you were saved from, don't you? If you can look back at your life of sin and where God has taken you, you can really see this whole idea of regeneration. Sometimes for kids... Like when I was saved when I was 8, you know, I wasn't a bank robber, or a murderer, or a child molester at age 8. I didn't have those sins. You know, so sometimes when kids, sometimes we downplay, sometimes we think you have to have this dramatic conversion. If I don't have this dramatic conversion where I'm knocked off a horse and I was, you know, like Paul was, and I don't have the blinding light, and I was, I was an alcoholic, and I was a pedophile, and I was a, and I was, you know, all this stuff, and then God saved me that your salvation is not valid because you didn't have this dramatic experience. Regeneration is regeneration, right? regardless of how dramatic it is. For a a six-year-old kid to be regenerated and to trust Christ for salvation is just as miraculous as a drug dealer who's 40 years old getting saved. Because what happens? Both are dead in sin and they've been given a new heart. I praise God that that child is saved at six because guess what? He saved a lifetime of heartache. Whereas that person that went through 50 years of heartache and is finally saved, I'm sure if you ask them, I'd much rather have God save me when I was six. Now, God's sovereign over when the timing is of your salvation, but I I think it's important for us. And then I've always had people ask this question, I don't remember my regeneration. I don't remember that exact point in time when I was saved. How many of you, and I want to just see a show of hands because I bet you it's not very many, how many of you know the exact moment that you were saved? One, two, three. How many of you kind of know, but you're not really sure? I mean, you know you're, you're saved, but you don't know the exact moment. For those people that don't know their exact moment, sometimes there's some fear and trepidation because everybody talks about that moment. And maybe you feel like, well, maybe I didn't have that moment. M- you know, what am I missing out on? Well, you were regenerated just like they were. It's just that there was a decisive time where they understood that. It could be, like, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. My son, Aiden was baptized this past summer. Now, when he was five, on the side of his bed, he prayed and asked Jesus into his heart. Now, was he regenerated when he was five? Maybe. But as we started talking later on, when he got to be about nine or ten, he's like, I don't know if I'm saved, Dad. I think I just prayed a prayer. I don't think I was really saved. And he started getting bothered by that. And then over time, we started talking to him. He may have been saved when he was ten, and he got baptized at eleven. But he, if you ask Aiden, he, he may not tell you the exact time he was saved, but he knows he's saved. So, Just because regeneration is instantaneous, just because you can't see it, just because you can't pinpoint it, doesn't mean you're not saved. What's evidence that you're saved? Are you believing? Not did you believe at one point, but are you believing today? Are you trusting today? Yes, you believed at one point, but almost all those verbs that are used in the Bible, especially in John, about believing are all in the present active. It's an ongoing lifestyle of belief. And when we get to perseverance of the saints, you'll find that a lot of people pray to prayer, but aren't believing or living today, were they born of God? That's a a question that we, we may not be able to ever know. Any other questions? On anything we've talked about this whole time. Okay, what I may need to ask Sherry to do me a favor. Can you get some scratch paper What I'm going to do is I'm going to send around a sheet of paper, and you don't necessarily have to turn this in today, or maybe you can... I just want you to write some questions that you have, that you've been dying to ask. Because when we get towards the end, I'm going to take a whole night of just answering the questions. And if there's some same questions that emerge, and maybe some things that weren't clear, we can go back and revisit those. And so um, you can write those down tonight, or you can write them on something, or you can email those to me. But if you have a question... Um, that's kind of been you maybe you were afraid to ask you know or maybe you've thought about or maybe you're, like you're driving and then you think about it after you leave here which probably happens you don't think about it when you're here but when you're when you're out doing something okay we're going to i'm going to i'll actually teach this tonight cuz i was going to get it to you next week but since you, but since you asked the question okay here's the question the question is can you repent of your sins if you're dead in sins i mean is repentance a gift is that basically what you're asking is repentance a fruit of regeneration Yes. Is that, is that part of the, yes. The yes. Action. Yes. You have to be, the Calvinists would say, you have to be regenerated to repent. Now, here's the way I look at it, okay? Think about a coin. <clears throat> Two sides of one coin, okay? On one side of the coin is regeneration, on the other side of the coin is conversion, okay, which we'd call repenting and trusting, okay? They happen simultaneously. But regeneration really comes first, even though it's even though it is experientially, maybe at the same time, the regeneration is what triggers that repentance. It's not like you're regenerated and like, you know, months down the road you repent. Your, your side of the coin that you experience is the repenting and turning. The side that you don't see is the regeneration side that happened to you that caused you to do that. Does that make sense, Roger? So if, yeah, if you're dead in sin, it has to be. And, and I'm going to show you a few passages here if you just let me go. let's let's kind of skip through some of this stuff and go back on page, the last page. Um, what we're saying is this: as a Calvinist. What would the are many that the Arminian would say you as a you as free will, you choose to repent. You choose to believe, and once you do that, then God regenerates you. Then God causes you to be born again. Yeah. Because that, yeah, there's, if, you, if you believe in total depravity, that doesn't make sense. That's That's the ultimate question. If you're dead in sin, how can you do it unless God does something to you first? Right. Yeah. Just thinking about these things. It may, if, yeah, how can I turn from sin if, I, if I'm dead in sin? Yeah. How can you turn from it? Yeah, exactly. Let me give you some text here to show you that repentance is a gift. The Calvinist says this. Your ability to repent, your ability to trust is a gift that's given to you at Regeneration. These are gifts that God gives you to be able to do. You cannot produce repentance. You cannot produce faith. They're gifts given to you in regeneration. That's what the Calvinist says. The Arminian says, no, those aren't gifts given to you in regeneration. Those are things that you have in your free will. Those cause your regeneration. Let me just show you some text here to show that repentance and faith are gifts, okay? We'll do these in the last few minutes here. It's that part on the last page. What biblical text show us that the Spirit does indeed give us the gifts of repentance and faith? I'm just going to give you these verses, okay? Acts 5.31, God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What did God give to Israel? He gave them repentance. So God, that sounds like God gave them the gift of, he gave them the ability to what? This is talking about when the Jews accepted Christ for salvation. Okay, Acts 11.18, this is when they come back and they report that the Gentiles were becoming Christians. Acts eleven eighteen. 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles has also God granted repentance that leads to life. What has God given to the Gentiles? Repentance. It's a gift. God granted it to them. Okay? Acts thirteen forty eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that's more of an election passage, but they were appointed to eternal life. God gave them the ability to turn. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let me just give you the best case scenario here of the most famous passage of Scripture on salvation. But let me start back up in verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Okay, even when we were dead, what did God do? God God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So what's grace? Being made alive when you're dead. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right, here's where we take this verse out of context. In what we've just seen, here we go. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now, all of us would agree that salvation is by grace through faith, right? But we've got to ask the question, what's the this that's not your own doing, and what's this that's the gift of faith? The Greek there basically lends it to mean the whole package. Your faith and the grace is a gift of God. Not only is the grace a gift of God and not of your own selves, the faith that God even gave you to believe in Him is a gift from God. So yes, we still believe, but the reason we believe is because God gave us the gift of faith to believe. So God gives us the gift of repentance. God gives us the gift of faith in regeneration. That's the very first gift God gives you in salvation. When God regenerates you, boom, instantaneously, the gift he gives you is repentance and faith. You repent, you turn, you do the action, but the reason you do the action is because God gave it to you as a gift. Does that make sense? That kind of answers your question, Roger. Now, here we go, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also to suffer. What has it been granted for us to do? To believe. Even our believing has been granted to us. Now, here's an interesting passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy, where you have to read this carefully. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Okay, if you're going to be doing witnessing, if you're going to be doing evangelism, he's saying there you've got to be kind, you've got to be able to teach, you've got to not, not get in people's face... And then look at what it says. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. What, does that, what could that possibly mean? God may not grant them repentance. You don't know. What's your job in that passage? What's your responsibility? Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Teach patiently endure, correct opponents, be gentle, those are the things you can control. Be kind, be nice, and you're witnessing, and and, and this is really talking to a pastor here, Timothy, in your pastoral ministry, Timothy, you correct, you be gentle, you preach, you teach, you do everything in your power to present the gospel, but at the end of the day, if they're going to believe, what's going to happen? God's got to grant it. God may, God may not. If God does grant it, what does that mean? They were elect. If God does not grant it, it means they were not. That's the way the Calvinists would answer that question. But you have to deal with the fact that God may perhaps, which means there's a lingering doubt in your mind that God may not. But if they're going to repent, what has to happen? Can, that text teaches one thing. If they're going to repent, God has to do it. God has to grant it to them. And then James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He brought us forth. He caused us to be born again. So ultimately, to answer your question, Roger, here in the closing, is that if you are dead in sin, you can't repent unless God gives you that gift. And does he give that gift to everybody? Because if he gives that gift to everybody, then everybody would repent. The Arminian says he gives that gift to everybody, but you can choose to reject that in Provenient grace.